Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We will call, sir, uh, we called all the numbers. They don't answer. Uh, I don't know what, what is the problem with there. What, what is wrong with them? There's no one is want to answer us. They're really kidding us. Please, yellow, please. This is Amjad. He is on a tiny boat in the middle of the channel, the body of water between England and France that has become the focal point of so much political point scoring in recent times. The Home Office has called on France to take tougher action after almost 300 migrants crossed the channel in two days. Last Thursday, a record figure of 202 people attempted the crossing in 20 small boats. Migrant patrol groups operating along the Kent coast monitor and highlight what they describe as an invasion of illegal migrants. This boat, we can see about 25 people on it. They've now got over the line into England. Stopping the boats is now one of the Prime Minister's key priorities. But at this moment, Amjad doesn't care about any of that because his boat is taking on water and he's called for help from the British Coast Guard and from the French, but no one is coming. At this moment, surrounded by others in the boat, Amjad is alone. For example, if I call when the 999 is talking, they said call to French and when the French is... Uh, talking to the called to United Kingdom. And they are, the both of them is laughing at us. I'm Maeve McClanagan. This is The Tip-Off. Eleanor Rose, and I'm an investigative journalist. Back in 2022, Eleanor Rose was editor at Liberty Investigates, the investigative unit within the human rights NGO Liberty. There, she worked with several journalists, including Erin Wallawalker. I'm Erin Wallawalker. Erin and Eleanor had a keen interest in what was happening to asylum seekers, both once they were in the UK and as they arrived. And the news had been full of horror stories. Loon Plage outside Dunkirk. Part chemical industrial complex, part beach. The launching point yesterday for a tragedy resounding across Europe. 27 people dead, including seven women, one of whom was pregnant. Three children, two boys and a girl. There were two survivors, an Iraqi and a Somalian, found in the water with extreme hypothermia. Yeah, so... And on the 24th of November 2021, the news broke of the horrific tragedy in which a boat carrying about 34 people, 33 or 34, sank in the middle of the channel. A few days after that, one of two survivors spoke to Kurdish media and said that they'd called the UK Coast Guard and also the French Coast Guard, and each side had told them that they were in the other's waters. 
That was a shock to Aaron. The fact that these people in desperate need, in the middle of the water, had called for help and no one had answered their call. And at the same time, he was hearing from those working with asylum seekers and migrants, both in the UK and in France. And he got a message from a woman. Mentioning that their volunteers had received reports of other people trying the crossing at around the same time and having a similar experience. So I told Eleanor about this and yeah, immediately we both thought that this is something that we really need to look further into. So what had happened that night in November? How had all those people come to drown in the busiest shipping channel in the world? Had no one really come to the rescue? And if that was the case, how often did that happen? So many questions and no easy answers. Eleanor was interested, but as an editor, she needed to think carefully about whether this was the right thing for the small team to be looking at. Yeah, I was really concerned about resource because it looked like something that you could spend a huge amount of time on, building sources, looking at open source ways of investigating uh, FOI requests to public authorities can frequently take a really, really long period of time to come good. So I I guess I was pretty tough about this sometimes. I kind of asked Aaron to do some initial reporting and we spoke a lot about that. And then at at periods in the coming months, I just checked in again and again, really, and, and asked, does this really have legs? And how else could we explain some of this? And that's part of your role as the editor to kind of destroy what someone's trying to build at the same time as they're trying to build it. But I was also trying to do as much as I could to build it as well. So I was holding those two things at the same time. And at every stage, I was just kind of looking at the public interest, asking, are we going to find something important out at the end of all of this? We've got a tiny resource. You know, at the end of the year, are we going to say we didn't manage to do any stories? The two kept talking and Aaron got to work thinking about how he could delve into the subject in a different way. The news was full of stories about the number of boats coming over, particularly the right-wing press, but there was much less about the mechanics of how the crossings happened and why. And we both felt that there was something in looking at the wider pattern of how the Coast Guard was handling incidents in general in that period of time. And we kind of developed a hypothesis of, was this tragedy a foreseeable kind of consequence of a pattern of distress calls being ignored and what was the reason for these calls being ignored? So where to start? Well, Erin thought, if people are contacting the Coast Guard asking for help, surely there must be a record of that call somewhere. We set out to have conversations and find people who had inside knowledge of the Coast Guard to get a sense of what kind of documents we could get. Erin and Eleanor searched for people online, using sites like LinkedIn, to find anyone with maritime search and rescue knowledge or experience of working with the Coast Guard. And then they'd fire off messages... It wasn't always easy, though. The Coast Guard was under a huge amount of scrutiny because of the tragedy. What we learned as we went along was that we kind of heard talk of people being warned by their employer not to speak to journalists. It seemed like something that was, whether that's true or not, extremely sensitive and difficult for them to talk about for a lot of reasons, including kind of loyalty to their colleagues and so on. But slowly, through those off-the-record conversations, they began to understand better what happens when a distress call comes in. When a small boat is in the middle of the channel and calls 999, that's typically known 
as a distress phase incident, which under international maritime law means that coast guards should consider them to be in grave and imminent danger and try and locate that boat and send resources to rescue it as quickly as possible. We alighted upon the existence of these internal incident logs, which they're meant to kind of provide a contemporaneous note of all the steps that Coast Guard operators take to try and rescue somebody after a call comes in. So, now he knew what he was looking for, Aaron could put in a request to the Coast Guard using the Freedom of Information Act. And so he wrote up his message. A request for transcripts of calls. We decided to target April. The busiest crossing date thus far had been in April 2022. And then excitingly, the FOI came back. A response with the transcripts that they'd asked for. And then later, he got another FOI, which provided an amazing spreadsheet. One of the kind of initial bits of FOI success that we had was obtaining a Coast Guard kind of Excel spreadsheet called the Shared UK Migrant Incident Tracker. Now, it was partially redacted, and this database tells you the basic details of each reported small boat that comes in on each day. There are some especially busy days. We noticed it's not uniform. Each report is given a a code name following the alphabet. So it's Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta. It's got coordinates of each reported incident where they have it. The number of people that are reported to be on board, a description of the vessel, its color, its size, and then if any asset was tasked to it, which means was an RNLI boat or a border force ship sent. There was two columns which were completely redacted, which is the outcome, which would tell us what happened in the end, and a column called notes. Looking through the spreadsheet, the days leading up to the tragedy, and the days from the tragedy themselves were completely redacted, we noticed a number of instances where they had coordinates for a small boat, but there was no record of any asset being tasked. It was a great start, but Aaron knew that they needed more. So he put in more FOI requests. Now, he didn't want to give the Coast Guard the opportunity to refuse his requests, saying that it would take too long to process. That's a common reason that's given for rejections. So instead, he split his requests up into manageable parts, sending one after another. But then, after six or so were sent off in four months, he got a major rejection. When we put in a request for incident logs from November 2021, then that one came back claiming that we're vexatious on the basis of how many requests we'd submitted. The Coast Guard were refusing to provide Liberty with this information because they said their requests were vexatious. Legal cases on other requests like this have established that that vexatious term means the request was considered, quote, manifestly unjustified, inappropriate or improper use of a formal procedure. The Coast Guard made that we were being vexatious was something they stuck to and appeared prepared to take all the way, even though when we looked at it in the most objective possible light that we felt that we could... We didn't really think they had a case to say that. Our FOIs were not so numerous and they built on each other. So once we found something out, we would then do another request to kind of dig further in. And I felt that our approach was reasonable. So the vexatious label didn't really feel like it fit. And I just detected kind of a closing ranks stonewalling situation arising. 
The team tried to challenge the rejection, explaining the importance of their questioning and arguing that it was justified under the Freedom of Information Act. In the end, they decided to take the issue to the Information Commissioner's Office, the body that rules on FOI issues. But they can take a long time to rule on things like this. So the team was stuck. The font of FOI information had dried up. But then Aaron thought back to that spreadsheet he had been given, the one with all the details about each boat that had called in a distress signal and what had or hadn't happened next. According to that, there seemed to be several instances where, despite receiving distress calls, no help had been sent by the Coast Guard. He wanted to be sure that that wasn't just a case of them failing to input the data correctly. But how could he look into that? These were events that had happened miles out to sea, away from witnesses. Then he had an idea. He remembered that there was software out there that tracked ships' coordinates, allowing you to watch where the boats had sailed. We realised that we could plot the coordinates of these reported small boats into that software to kind of see, did any of these RNLI boats or Coast Guard helicopters or Border Force cutters come anywhere close in the hours after they were reported? After doing that analysis, we identified numerous instances where a boat was reported, but no assets came within a nautical mile radius in four hours. You sort of imagine that it's not possible to to know things about what happened on what date somewhere out there in the deep blue, right? But that's the amazing thing about marine traffic data, that actually we know exactly what happened. It just takes mashing together a couple of different sources of information and then you have a much more crystallised picture. It was a shocking moment. There on the computer screen, Aaron could see exactly how isolated these stricken boats were. And Eleanor and I were both in the office, kind of like projecting the software up against the wall, trying to kind of visually analyse it all. I was really, really keen to see it up on a kind of big screen, partly because I'm a bit lo-fi, but also partly because screens are so small in our laptops that we've been working on through the pandemic and even a bigger monitor. They're so small. We didn't want to make any mistakes. So we projected it kind of big and we plotted the points and we watched everything several times. And after we watched it, came the fact-checking process later where someone else watched it too and made sure that our eyes weren't deceiving both of us. I was having kind of an exciting time in a way because that point where you feel like you might be able to prove something that you're very, very worried that you're wasting loads of resources on. It's a nice moment where you feel like you you might have something. The data, projected up there onto the office wall, seemed clear. The boats were in distress. They put in calls for help. No one came. But the team wanted to be 100% sure they were understanding the situation correctly. We've had elements of doubt, I suppose, you know, making sure that we weren't jumping to conclusions like what possible other explanations could there be for what we're seeing. So they set out, trying to find more experts who could help them firm up their understanding. They were going to have to go out and convince people to talk. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
we got a certain way by electronic means, etc. And then we felt like we needed to go to a place where we were likely to meet people um, with knowledge of Coast Guard operations. And uh, obviously when you go knock doors, there's a lot of things you're bearing in mind. I'm thinking about the editor's code and not harassing people. So you need to approach really, really respectfully and explain why you're there, be super transparent and all of that. I think we made the judgment that We had tried a lot of other ways of getting the information that we were looking for. And it may actually be that if we approached in person, that the people we were trying to reach might actually want to also speak to us. And we considered the public interest of the story so strong that we we were happy to do that. It was really nerve wracking, even though I've done that loads and loads of times. You are always thinking about the stakes of the story. I think it helps that we both went together and we kind of took it in turns to do approaches. And where we didn't get an answer, we sat down and kind of wrote notes and just said to various people that we were visiting who we were, what we were about, reassured them about our intentions and, and how we could protect them. And explained why we thought it was an important thing to speak about and specifically what we thought they could help with. After days of meeting with people, knocking on doors, making cold calls, they had it. We checked the methodology with five different experts or people with knowledge of inside the Coast Guard and we were kind of like, is this just a random kind of parameters that we've imposed on this situation, not being seafaring people as it were? And they agreed that it was a sound way of looking at things. So that was hugely reassuring as well. Yeah, kind of amazing. I felt like Aaron's idea to do this, it was actually, when it came down to it, pretty simple, but took so much creativity on his part to see that that was possible from this spreadsheet that he'd got. Meanwhile, Aaron was working to find people that had been on these boats and survived. And one way to do that was to try and find people that had arrived in the UK after making the crossing. So what I actually found myself doing was travelling to hotels, where asylum seekers are being accommodated, mainly around Heathrow and Gatwick, to try and find people who had crossed it around that time. I basically got off the tube at this hotel near Heathrow, and from the outside, the hotel looks dilapidated, like it's falling apart. It's got this cladding, big chunks of it are falling off. Each side of the car park, you've got security guards sitting there with clipboards, monitoring who comes in and out. I walked around the hotel, kind of, scoping out the scene, I tried walking in and was immediately asked, you know, who I am. Mentioned, obviously, clearly that I'm, I'm a reporter and I'm just interested in, you know, understanding the conditions inside these hotels and possibly speaking to some of the people. Understandably, security guards, well, perhaps understandably, they were not pleased to see a reporter and they said, get in touch with the Home Office press office, please go away effectively. So I spent maybe an hour or so sitting at a bus stop just opposite waiting for somebody to come out who I could speak to. Eventually somebody did and I noticed that they seemed hugely frustrated because they weren't able to just simply walk out as you would if you were just leaving your home. They had to get into some long conversation with a security guard. I spoke to him and he was a man from Afghanistan who was just heading to his mosque and walked along with him to the bus stop and had a conversation with him about his experiences crossing the channel and yeah he was extremely happy to talk about those experiences. The visits to those hostels were eye-opening. They provided Aaron with evidence he needed for another story, one about restrictive conditions that asylum seekers found themselves in once they'd reached the UK. But it also gave him some insights into what the crossings were like. 
He also reached out to NGOs that worked with survivors, and they were able to put him in touch with people. I think we interviewed myself and Eleanor, maybe a dozen people. We were trying to sort of triangulate or link their experiences crossing the channel to the documents that we'd managed to obtain to sort of see if we could concretely determine what happened to the people who were reported to the Coast Guard and, according to this method, appear to have been effectively ignored. And we were able to do that with Amjad, who was helped by the charity Utopia 56, which provides a similar service to Alarm Phone, an NGO where people who are stuck in the middle of the channel and they're struggling to get help from the Coast Guard on either side can contact them and they will intervene to ensure that somebody comes to rescue them. So, yeah, we spoke to Amjad and he told us that he was on a boat carrying 23 people, which was silver in colour, crossing on the 20th of November when the boat started running out of fuel at about 6am, I believe it was. And yeah, his experiences matched up with one of the boats that we identified using our method. And that was another like massive breakthrough moment where we can say that this is what in fact happened to one of these people. They did contact both sides according to their own account and were ultimately left to drift for a period of time until an NGO intervened to make sure they got rescued. For example, if I call when the 999 is talking, they said call to French and they were on the French just... Uh, talking, they said, called to United Kingdom. And they are, the both of them is laughing at us. I remember being sent those WhatsApp voice notes and it was really the desperation in his voice as he's pleading with the NGO to intervene, saying that he feels that the call handler on the other end of the line is mocking him, basically. It was, yeah, heartbreaking and it really brought home what we'd previously been looking at spreadsheets and these small icons moving around on marine traffic. It really brought home how harrowing each one of those experiences has the potential to be and was in this instance. Liberty Investigates started working with the observer's Mark Townsend on the investigation. He had reported on the plight of asylum seekers for years. So he was able to use his expertise and connections to find family members of those who hadn't been as lucky as Amjad those that had died while trying to cross the channel. And the team were able to see transcripts of calls made during that tragedy in November 2021. Those documents had been released by French lawyers to the French media. They're really documenting the most desperate circumstance you can imagine. People in a dinghy that is sinking in very, very cold water, believing that they would be able to reach help and being passed between authorities. And I think there was some suggestion in those documents that the officers who were dealing with those calls had made pretty flippant comments. And it really, it's heartbreaking stuff. There are laws in place, international laws, that call on states to do search and rescue at sea, to have sufficient structures and systems in place to do rescue at sea so that when anybody has that desperate moment, and that really could be someone on a leisure craft having a disaster it could be anybody but in this case yes people crossing the channel in small boats that they call and the expectation is that that call is taken seriously and put through their systems and help comes if that's at all possible so those documents are really really grim reading and kind of encapsulate the reason we were doing this how many people were in that desperate situation and what was really happening. 
After months of pulling together the data, battling for the information through FOI, cross-referencing it with marine traffic logs and talking to survivors, the team were ready to publish. The days leading up to publication of a story, especially this one that we've been working so long and has been the main focus of my life for many, many months, there's always an element of kind of anxiety. I think that that's helpful in a sense because it meant that we were extremely kind of like rigorous in checking absolutely every detail, having, as Elena mentioned before, five experts reviewing our method, repeatedly going to the Coast Guard to get their response and explanation of what might have happened in these instances where we've found boats potentially left adrift. We approached them multiple times. Eleanor asked Claire Hughes, the director of HM Coast Guard, for an interview, and they said ultimately that while their sympathies are with the people and the families that lost their lives, that it would be inappropriate to comment while investigations are ongoing. They had found hundreds of vulnerable migrants just abandoned to their fates after the UK Coast Guard effectively ignored their reports of distress. And that was happening during the days leading up to that terrible, tragic disaster in November 2021. And the team were able to reveal that the number of emergency phone operators on shift in the Dover control room fell below internal targets, including on the night of the tragedy. The story led the Observer's front page and prompted MPs to call for an urgent review of Coast Guard staffing levels and a fundamental review into the Coast Guard's available resources. It was I suppose like a relief that a project that we'd invested so much kind of resource into received that kind of prominence and attention and hopefully brought into sharp focus this issue which the bereaved families of that tragedy have been demanding justice for for a long period of time and are continuing to fight for. So yeah, it was a great relief. But in the months since the investigation was published, tragic news about small boat crossings has continued. And with the attempted opening of the Bibby Stockholm, a barge which is planned to house asylum seekers, the question of how Britain treats those it comes to its shore asking for refuge has never been more pertinent. The fate of those like Amjad continues to be tossed around like a political football. Points scored, lives and humanity forgotten. And then, last month, more tragedy. And we want to bring you an update on the crossing of that boat across the channel that capsized. We're hearing that at least six people have died. We're hearing this from the Reuters news agency. So six people have died, they're confirming. Uh, dozens of others were rescued. Uh, this happened at around four o'clock. This migrant boat was found to be in difficulty and there was a joint effort in the rescue operation. As the crossings continue, the Liberty Investigates team continue to look into what happens to those who try to seek asylum in the UK. That's all for this episode of The Tip-Off. Thanks to Erin and Eleanor. I put a link to their stories in the show notes. This episode was presented and produced by me, Maeve McLennigan, with editing from Chloe Behrens, original music by Claudia Meza, sound designed by Alec Cowan, and additional support from Joaquin Alvarado. Our theme tune is by Dice Muse. Stay tuned for more stories behind the headlines. Hold up. 
subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.